If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So from a sociological perspective, that you can be racist, um, and that comes from, you know, uh, operating out of a sense of self-interest. And so, you know, that yeah. I think that that's part of why lots of folks talk about that, that part of, you know, anti-racist work is by building interclass or, you know, building class coalitions and understanding that, yeah. that, you know, lots of racists who are who are worried about black folks taking what they got, that the reality is it's not black folks who want to take what you got. It's the 1% that wants to take what you got and is keeping you from having more. And they're made, you're right, they, but they have, you know, the, the elites, the ruling class have a vested interest in keeping poor white folks scared of poor black folks, scared of, yeah. of you know, Mexicans crossing the border, thinking, oh, they're going to yeah. take our jobs and change our country. And as long as they have you looking that way, then you're not looking at the tax situation or at the fact of like why you have to pay so much for insulin. When, you know, it could be, right, it could be free for everyone if we, right, if we allow, uh, you know, uh, all kind of, uh, we, we come to a place of having universal health care, like most other developed countries in the world. 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 Welcome to Wow Black a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black if black culture's there we're there if you're pissed or empowered then let's talk about it right with us on this all black everything everybody welcome back to wild black that's the part where Art kicks in and says, welcome back, welcome back. Art is not with us today. He's out handling business. You got me solo with another dope episode. You know how it is here at Wild Black. Listen, today, I don't know if I'm even going to say this right. He's an author, and he has a book out. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in just a second. But what, what caught me about this book was it feels like it's diving into the entire philosophy behind racism tucked behind a computer, tucked behind the safety and the protection, the faux protection in some places of, of, of how we... It's the protection that people feel that emboldens them to say whatever they really want to say when they know you can't touch them. That's an element of, to, to the book that he wrote. It's not everything. It's a, it's a pretty comprehensive book, and I know we'll talk about a lot of it. Like, I think about keyboard gangsters and all these people in my comments for the podcast, for my world professionally. And when they have that computer screen between us, they can say what they want to say. They feel empowered to say anything to me. And to you too, right? There's a there's a lot of that going on. For me, it used to be when people drove in cars down the street, they got real bold. They flip you off, they blow the horn, they yell out the window and say what they want to say. And now people do that behind the computer screen with a fake name, with a, a profile with no followers and no pictures. 
and they they talk that they talk that shit basically. They they say what they want to say, and they feel protected in this world. Like, and and what is that doing to the way we behave? When you get used to being behind the computer screen and saying what it is that you want to say, what does that do to your psyche and the way you move in the world? Because at some point you won't be behind a computer screen, but you've gotten so used to saying these things. What happens then? Right? That's that's part of what this conversation about today is about. And we didn't do a pre-call like I normally do because I was so attracted to the idea behind what he is talking about. We skipped all that. It was like, hey, let's come to the show. Let's have an open conversation for the first time. There's nothing that we've chatted about before. And that is an attractive proposition to me. I've kept you in the dark long enough. My apologies, Wild Black family. Today, we have Rob Eshman on the show. Rob is a writer, a scholar, a filmmaker, and an educator from the cold city of Chicago. I lived there for about two years. It wore me out in the winters. <laughs> Rob, welcome to Wild Black, brother. How are you today? Oh, doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, I I didn't tell him much about you or the book at all. I love the name of the book. I wanted you to be able to say it first. I almost said it right then, trying to trying to tell you to say it. Brother, tell them about yourself, who you are, what the book is, what you called it, why you wrote it, what it's about, and we'll jump into everything else. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So my name is Rob Eshman. I'm a professor at Columbia University in New York. Uh, like my brother said, I was born and raised in Chicago, where in the winter it gets so cold that your forehead hurts if you're not wearing a hat. Mm. Um, the book is called When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance of the Digital Age. And it is a book about the ways that technology changes how we experience, understand, and respond to racism. Um, so it, it is something that, you know, it's, it's based on about eight years of research. Um, I talked to 85 students in five different cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, New York, Boston. Um, and then I did an analysis of millions of tweets over a decade looking at trends and how we talk about race and how that's been changing based on, you know, you know, uh, um, social media and, and, yeah. and, and online activists who are kind of forcing the issue and, and, and um, you know, pushing forward our national consciousness and the national conversation yeah. about race and racism. Yeah. I know you probably wound up at some pretty amazing conclusions. I'm assuming some that would probably surprise people and some that, as, as bad as it is to say, would probably comfort people. Right, the idea of at least being able to understand where some of this is coming from. But before we get to that, we got to jump into our wild black shit. Our listeners know wild black shit is three questions, fun, funny, sometimes a little serious, always, always, always touching the culture. And I want to jump in and ask you the first one. Are you ready? This is a deep question. Right? It's going to take some real thought. There are some wrong answers. Are you ready, brother? Yes, sir. All right. Do you eat breakfast cereal? <laughs> I haven't had breakfast cereal for breakfast in a while, but I I, uh, I do. I do occasionally. Okay. Qualified. What is the absolute blackest breakfast cereal you can come up with? I'm going to say plain Cheerios with, with some honey or some sugar on top that you put on yourself. <laughs> What's funny about that is that was the last cereal I ate. I think I ate it maybe last weekend, and I'm sure enough black. For me, it was either Honey Nut Cheerios, Captain Crunch, or Frosted Flakes. And I don't know why Frosted Flakes holds a special heart in in, in the a special part in the blackest corners of my heart. Why Cheerios? Why'd you go with that one? 
Oh man, see, I, you know, I feel like it, with either Cheerios or cornflakes, I just remember coming up where we didn't have the option of Frosted Flakes or Honey Nut Cheerios, and we had to make it sweet ourselves. Um, and so that's yeah. what I'm uh, the the making it a little bit homemade is why yeah. I made that choice, right? That of course. Of course, you know, now that I'm paid for groceries, that maybe I may pick up the honey materials <laughs> across the plate. Back in the back in the day we had to get the we had to add our own sweet. Did you get the branded or the one in the bag? Man, you know, I don't I don't have too many memories of the brand, but I feel like my parents were always saving money. Um yeah. and, and and you know, I think that I, I grew up hearing the speech of there's no difference between the you know, the name brand and the and the you know the the grocery store brand. So I heard that same speech many times. Yeah, A- along yeah, with the, the "you got McDonald's money" speech. I heard that <laughs> one too. <laughs> right, <laughs> a right. whole lot. <laughs> All right. Question two: With your education, your training, the the book that you wrote, I know you have context and understanding of our civil rights leaders. And the question I want to ask is kind of tucked inside of. Who's fought for us? So when you think about our historical civil rights leaders, if you had to imagine which one of those leaders today do you most think would be a battle rapper? (laughs) Oh, man. It's definitely going to be Malcolm X. That's what I went to right in my head. uh, I think he pulled no punches. I think that he was willing to be vicious, right? By any means necessary. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to put Angela Davis up there too, but I, I think that, that you know, um, I think that, that Malcolm, you just see clips of him being asked questions and being quick on his toes and responding to folks who say crazy stuff to him in ways where it's not, you know, it, he, he, could write a, he could write an eloquent speech too. Uh, but I think that we, we saw him much more than we saw uh, Martin, um, just, you know, going off the cuff. And so that's freestyling yeah. as opposed to, you know, writing, writing an album. Yeah. 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 His bars would have been vicious. All for right. real, for real. And I would, and I would have said, that, and I'm going to put Dr. King as, uh, as Kendrick, where he would have been making some concept albums. <laughs> and then he write Malcolm like is going to be Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. I can feel that. I can ride with that. All right. All right. Third final question. This is our signature question. We ask every guest that comes on the platform this one question. What do you love most about life while black? I'm going to have to say my family. I think that, that, that for me, being black is, is it's not just a personal enterprise. It's, it's community and it's history. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, and I think that, you know, I have a big extended family and I, you know, and I think, um, you know, from my immediate family to my, uh, um, to all my cousins and just seeing what, what black life and love and loss and grief and pain and struggle, um, looks like. And, and then, and, um, you know, I think that, that, so much of what I learned about our history came from my family too. I have a family where, you know, my cousins were leading us in Kwanzaa. We thought we were coming over to grandma's house for Christmas. And then we ended up talking about Kwanzaa, right? They're, they're just, yeah. I think that, 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 um, 
Yeah, yeah. Blackness, are, you know, it, 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 for me, is a, it has a lot to do with who we are as a people and, and family. Um, and so, you know, being a being a part of of a of a larger story. Yeah, I love that answer. It, it makes it easier to kind of move into this next question. Um, the next section I want to dive into is what we call the dope quote. The dope quote is something from religion or science, history, politics, entertainment. It doesn't really matter. It comes from the mouth of someone black, and it has relevance on our episode today. And the reason I wanted to ask this question, or use this quote, rather, is because in the research that you did for your book and the tweets that you analyzed, the social media platforms that you researched, and all the students and people that you spoke with, I assume you had to get a pretty good perspective on how people feel, right? How do we feel in the moments when we feel attacked with words, right? Because we say words, but in, in reality, when they're used in that manner, they're weapons and they hurt, right? They have, they have impact and they sting and they cause us to bleed, literally sometimes figuratively, but there's an internal reaction to the words that are spoken towards us, especially when they're spoken with vitriol as they are often. So the quote that I wanted to get your perspective on is one of my favorite quotes. And it is the basis for this show. It's the basis for the entire show of Wild Black. Our, our listeners have heard the story a couple of times, but I was rageful because of how I felt existing in this country. And I needed an outlet. I needed something constructive to do with my rage. And I chose to create a platform that would educate us through amazing guests like yourself. And okay. so here, here's the quote. It's from James Baldwin. And it says, to be a Negro... In this country, and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all the time. When you hear that quote, what comes to mind for you? Ooh, that you know, that's interesting. Um, so I, I think I think I love that quote, and I think I identify with it. Um, and I think that you know, uh, early on in my career as a, as a grad student. I was kind of struggling with imposter syndrome and, and I had, had dealt with some um, issues of racism on campus. And I asked, a, you know, a mentor of mine for some advice and just navigating the environment in this elite institution where I, I did not necessarily feel like I belong. And he shared with me a quote, like an, a, a Native American or American Indian quote. Um, that talked about moving around an enemy territory. And he spoke about how that is, you know, what it, what it can feel like in academia is, is you're in enemy territory. Um, and how that, you know, that mindset just kind of changes the way that you move and that, right, that you want people who you respect to respect you, but you also expect for there to be problematic things thrown at you. And, and kind of when you expect it, then maybe it hurts a little bit less. Um, so I think that, that, that idea for me has to do with us recognizing how often, how pervasive this problem of racism is, how often we're dealing with the ugliness, um, the ways that it affects our health and our, our well-being. And, and I think of myself as a relatively privileged person, um, that, you know, I think I'm insulated from some forms of racism. You know, whenever I keep my my shirt tucked in on campus, it's like right. I, I'm 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 I'm, um, 
like I like I, I I am somewhat protected, and just knowing that right, this is something that 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 all of us are feeling in some type of way. So I think it just makes me reflect on the reality of what it means to be black. And, and to be honest, and, and and I know we're not jumping in the book yet, but it, it it makes me think about Du Bois and the idea of double consciousness theory, and and then how the awareness of racism makes us feel like we are not whole. Um, that we right, it kind of splits our consciousness into who we are as a people, who we know ourselves to be, but then who we we know that, uh, you know, uh, um, racist, the ways that we know that racist or white folks um, with problematic views see us. Um, and, and, you know, in the book I talk about, right, the, the one way that I see it as healing the double consciousness problem is the way that we engage on social media and kind of rejecting, rejecting white prejudice, rejecting these ideas about us that are problematic and flipping the script and, and, you know, highlighting and, 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 and collectively exposing the ways the white supremacy works in a, in a, in a mode that can be funny and insulting and, and cathartic and, and, and bring healing. Yeah. You know, it's bringing up that, that idea. I think it just creates an easy opportunity to go ahead and, and start diving into the book. So going back to the idea of this double consciousness, add a little more detail and context to those who are not familiar with that. And then talk to us a little bit about how that correlates to the book itself. Yeah, yeah. So Du Bois talks about there being a veil in between the black world and the white world. Um, And for black folks, in order to survive, we have to understand both the black world and the white world. Mm -hmm. So we can see through the veil. But the veil is one-sided because white folks can't see through the veil to understand the realities of black life. So for, you know, for us, that, that, that means that we have this double consciousness of understanding both positions and, and, and or, you know, both, both perspectives and, and, and ways of life and understanding what they think of us, that that prevents us from, from having a singular sense of self, that our own sense of self is always in conflict or, in, or it contradicts the world's, uh, what the world thinks of us, right? And so it's this idea that right, being aware of racism changes um, how, we, how we, you know, walk through life. And so there's other forms of research that have explored things like this, things like stereotype threat, that if we are aware that, that, uh, of a stereotype that's being put on us, it changes our performance. If you, if you tell a, a group of black kids before a test, hey, we know black kids are not as good at math, so take this math test, just do the best that you can. They perform worse than if you don't have that conversation with them beforehand. So knowing that racism is coming negatively impacts um, our lives, right? And so that's kind of um, um, gets to the heart of these things, right? Things like experiencing microaggressions and the negative effect that they have on our health is that just, right, feeling this this subtle racism is enough to hurt our mental health outcomes, hurt, right? In- increase anxiety, increase depression, increase stress because we are seeing the way that they're treating us um, differently on a, right, in, in, in small ways that are not big enough to get them in trouble for being racist, but are big enough to, to you know, impact our lives. And so I think that is what double consciousness is. Um, and in chapter six of the book, I introduce some, a concept called double-sided consciousness. And I explore on black Twitter the ways that black folks um, you know, use this word "why people," just kind of a creative spelling for white people, to expose yep. and highlight the ways that whiteness works in different contexts, um, in a way that I feel is flipping the script of double consciousness. Um, and, and instead of it, you know, having this internalized 
you know, and, and very, you know, individual level sense of who we are, um, you know, being, being impacted by the ways that whites view us. It's an externalized and collective, no longer an individual level problem. We're doing it as a community way of rejecting how whites feel about us and instead putting whiteness in the spotlight. And we know that so often whiteness is just seen as being the neutral state of being. And so by putting the spotlight on whiteness, we're saying, no, this is not neutral. And these are things that are, that are unique to, to white folks and that are problematic um, when, when, when whiteness is, is uh, um, being used in a way to create inequality and to, and to suggest that, that, that this is the superior or the natural, the normal way of being. Yeah. Brother, you said so much that was powerful in, in those words. So many things I want to dig into, but I, I think the biggest question that I wanted to ask is, is one of help, right? As you talk about the way the world sees you, speaks to you, and the things that they tell you about yourself impact us from the inside out, right? That, that's what I heard you kind of talk about. And for me, that, that fuels the fire for imposter syndrome. It's the exact opposite of words of affirmation or positive affirmations that we do see and believe work. So for the people who are operating in, in places and spaces where the world feels confident, I'm sorry, where the world feels confident enough to tell them all these negative perceptions about them, how do they begin to fight their way out from under that pressure and that belief? How do they build a space where they feel protected enough to be who they really are, who they authentically are, and not who the world tells them that they should be. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that's a tough question. I, and I think there are a number of different ways that we see. Um, and so, again, in the book, I talk about one way, which is just kind of collective discursive projects online where we are verbalizing these things and talking about them as a community. Uh, other ways, you know, that, that, that things called... Uh, counter spaces, and there's a long, there's a lot of literature about um, students of color on college campuses and joining counter spaces as as places where they can do what you're describing, where they're able to learn about their culture, they're able to celebrate themselves, they're able to have a, a break from the you know the everyday racism that they experience on the college campus, um, and, and and a space where they feel they can be safe from what the culture of the campus is, and instead that they can kind of retreat into our culture. Um, and, 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 and kind of, and heal and, and, and be rejuvenated, yeah. right? Um, and chapter five of the book, I talk about resisting racism and how folks, you know, clapping back at racist online creates online counter spaces, which are not necessarily the clubs and the, the formal spaces, but there are spaces online where we, right, we, we can feel safe because we're seeing racism being torn down. And then all of a sudden this online space, which is a mainstream, visible to both white folks and black folks, other groups of color, um, but 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 in the within those spaces, anti-blackness is exposed and rejected, um, and then right, which creates a counter space where the norms here are different than the norms everywhere else. And so we get to decide what is accepted here, what is what is going to be moderated informally, right, by the community, but how we're going to um, and enact 
our own policies, right? The, the, the university isn't yeah. telling you to stop talking like that. You know, the, the social media giants aren't, but we are, and we're creating a space where it's not welcome. Does that mean that the clapback is more important than we give it credit for, right? Someone comes into your space, someone comes on your page, someone comes to your organizational page, your, your, your blog site, and, and they're talk, we'll, we'll talk plain. They're talking reckless, right? They're talking racist. They're, they're talking reckless. And there is an argument that I've heard in our community where some people stand and are very much adamant about, no, speak back. Push back. Yeah. Curse back, right? React loudly and broadly. And then there's another side to that conversation that says, ignore it. Don't, don't engage with it. And, and from what I just heard you say, not that there's necessarily a right or a wrong, but perhaps there's more power in the clapback than we initially or we may think, right? Creating those digital safe spaces by speaking up by being against the forces that walk into the space and feel comfortable and confident enough to say whatever they want to say about you. Is there validity to that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to be careful with the way I answer this because for some people, it takes energy to clap back and everybody doesn't have that energy. True. And everybody doesn't have that energy every day. And for some people, right, uh, um, Bell Hooks talks about how um, not responding and just being kind of in your home space can be protective for folks who are, are, are at risk because of, of daily experiences with racism. And I want to honor that, that for some people, yeah. not clapping back isn't necessary. But I absolutely yeah. think that it is important to clap back, that those problematic things are not problematic, right? Yeah. That when we say something, we, we may be stopping the reproduction of that racist idea. That for the person who, who's now getting clapped back at, they have to rethink, okay, am I going to own the fact that I'm being racist when I say this? Or have I, am I realizing, okay, this is not okay. I thought it was just a joke and now I realize this is hurting people. Let me not do it again. Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to make yeah. people, uh, right? And, and even if they don't change their hearts, that they may change their behavior, that they're going to say, all right, I'm not yeah. going to do this in front of folks again because I know that I'm going to get in trouble, right? And so what you're doing yeah. is you are creating a whole new set of norms where you are establishing that, that we are not going to allow you to behave badly in this way, in this context anymore. And then we're going to end up seeing behavior change. So absolutely, I think that clapping yeah. back is important. Um, I think that, you know, that, that, that the lots of people that I talk to and doing interviews for the book you know, really felt empowered when they saw those types of things happen. I think that because it's a collective process too, that it takes the individual pressure off of us. So if there's someone who feels like I don't have the energy to clap back, that's okay. Because when was, yeah. when, when that was posted to a forum, there's going to be someone else who had energy that day to step in and yeah. say something. Um, and so, yes, I absolutely do see that as being something um, that is a, is a powerful act and maybe does not get enough credit in terms of us realizing that it can really um, have an impact, right? And beyond just having an impact on the, 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 you know, the small situation that's going on that day, it can have an impact on the people that are witnesses, um, you know. Yeah. I love that you added that, that, uh, that bit about creating those digital safe spaces. I also really respect the fact that you answered that question with so much care and safety to make sure that people understand that it's a spectrum. And one day it might be you who feels like clapping back. And the next day it might be you who doesn't have the capacity to clap back. And you need to stay solid 
for your own well-being. And, and both of those are okay because this is a team sport. We are collectively in this fight together, whether you decide to be vocal that day or not. The next question I want to I dive into really does begin to take us much closer to the book. And, and for me, this is something I have thought about, I mean, honestly, countless amounts of times and why when I saw your book, I was so excited to talk to you. We talk about social media and the internet as being an awful place, but we also talk about the many powerful and amazing benefits that come from it. But I wasn't sure if people had actually studied its effect on behavior on both sides. So what has been the role of the internet and specifically social media in racism? And how do you think it has kind of tipped the scales as we look at, say, the last 10 years? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, man. I think, um, so first of all, you know, go, going back even before 10 years, that, that we have to, mm-hmm. to, to see how racism is changing over time. That before, uh, right, when Jim Crow was the law of the land, when, when, when it was illegal to be racist, people were open mm-hmm. about being racist. You didn't, right? And in the book, I tell a story about, or this is a great example, of a, a sociological study done during the Jim Crow era where a sociologist sent a survey out to 250 different restaurants and hotels and asked them, would you serve an Asian couple? And, you know, 99% said, no, we would not serve an Asian couple. And then wow. the sociologist went on a road trip to those, those 250 establishments and all but one served the Asian couple that he went with. So people were more willing to admit racism than they were to act on racism. That was right. This is when racism was a law of the land and when it was legal. Isn't that, isn't that something? Because nowadays we have the opposite. Uh, we have the opposite uh, situation going on. And I tell stories about, you know, my personal experiences in the night and in, in nightlife scenes where you have uh, rules about dress code being, um, you know, kind of enacted uh, in, in uneven ways where they say, oh, you're not allowed to wear Jordans, but they only stop you from entering if you're wearing Jordans when you're black. And you can look inside and see that people wearing just what I'm wearing, but they're not going to let me in because the sign says no Jordans, no flat brim hats, right? No, no white T-shirts, no Tims. And they do these things in order to keep the population from being black inside their space. But then if you're white and you come in those things, that you know, the bouncer doesn't notice on your way in. And so people are not willing to admit racism, but they act on racism now, right? And so I think that that is something that, that has happened is racism has become more subtle. It is it, right that, that that you know. There's a great book I love to cite, "Racism Without Racism." It talks about the ways that people can be racist without hating folks of color. That you don't need to hate to be racist. You just your ideas about race just need to justify, you know, the 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 you know racial inequality. You need to believe that racial inequality comes from culture, comes from people not trying hard enough, and then that means that you don't have to think about a solution to those problems because it's on them. It's right. It's, it's not about yeah. race and more racism in a more structural sense in terms of, uh, of, you know, laws and policies and opportunities being different for white folks and for black folks and other groups of color in our, in our country. Um, and so, um, because subtlety is the norm because being, you know, kind of a hidden racist or, you know, a, 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 or even a, a racist who's not, you know, hateful in a, in a con- on a conscious level is the norm, what, is techn- what does technology do to change that? 
Um, and I think that, right, so there's, there's a concept I discussed called on, the online disinhibition effect. And it talks about the, the ways that humans communicating online without seeing each other, without having eye contact, makes it feel like there are no social consequences for things that, mm. right, for things that we may say in those situations. So people online and tend to be more hostile than they are in face-to-face settings when you can look someone in the eye. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. And that hostility is not just about race, it's just in general. But when you add racism to the mix, now people are going to be, right, like, right, like, like, now you have this increased hostility with this increased hate. You have right, research that shows that white folks talk differently about race in private versus in public. And online, mm. they they talk as comfortable as if, as if they were in private, but then it's also the space where things online, that you post online thinking it's just your friends can be screenshot and sent to everybody. Or, right, you may be saying it on Twitter or social media and not realizing that, right, oh, this is actually public. That uh, right, people don't necessarily recognize, um, you know, that that that, that when they're, they're talking mess on online, that this is you're not just talking to a room full of people that you trust the way that that, that you think that you are, right? Um, and so I think that there are lots of different ways that anonymity and and mm-hmm. kind of the social distance that we have online makes people feel more comfortable um, being open and honest with the type of racism that they would have, you know, that they would hide in other settings. Um, and, and, and for sure that, that, you know, I talk about that it's unmasking racism. So when racism has been hiding and not everybody can recognize it, um, you know, technology can unmask that racism and reveal it and, and show the world what its yeah. face looks like. So people who didn't think that it was real, you know, can leave and recognize, oh no, this is very real. Right. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, I'm thinking growing up, I remember going, you know, having conversations with, with white friends in school who just didn't believe that violence by police was a thing, mm. you know? And I think, right, like, and mm. so growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, I knew lots of people who had hands put on them by the cops. It was just, right, and, and every, right, we all, we all knew that this was happening. Yeah. White folks didn't yeah. believe it. And so when we think about the power of, like, some of these videos being sh- shared, is that there are legitimately people who did not believe in police violence, and then they see it, and now, right now, they're, they're they're faced with proof, and they have to wake up to the reality of like, okay, this is problematic. How do we stop this? And I think that that is something that that, that happens um, through social media that it exposes racism. Um, the racism has been hidden, and and now it's becoming less is harder and harder to hide um, through social media. So whether that's a leaked text, whether that's anonymous accounts, you know, talking crazy, whether it's viral videos showing racism from police or, you know, even just from, you know, folks in the neighborhood who feel like they have the right to call the police on black folks for having a good time. Mm. Damn, brother, you said so much again, like so many things that I just thought were powerful, but there's one I have to go back to. And that is the fact that hate is not a requirement, that hate is not a requirement for racism. I am struggling with my words today. The reason I love that so much is because I think that that simple statement has been what so many people who are operating in full-on racist mode use as their get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't Mm -hmm. hate them, therefore I must not be racist. This is just an opinion that I have based on experience. And hate has no bearing on racism. 
Where did that understanding come from? And, and to take that question a bit further, how do you help specifically black people, I think, believe that? Because in, in my mind, the way it works, if I can take the element of hate out of the equation, then my humanity amps up a bit. And maybe I can begin to not only forgive that person for what they said, but help them build past it, right? If you choose to go that route because education is not our responsibility. But if I remove the fact that maybe they don't hate me, because I think we also make that assumption that because someone is racist, there's an element of hate there, when sometimes it is simply the world that they see through because of their experiences, because of their isolation, because of a, of a bunch of reasons. But how do you help people believe that hate is not necessarily a factor in racism? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, and, and I think there are two two things for me to respond to there. So first, um, where that idea comes from for me is a book called Racism Without Racist by Eduardo Bonilla Silva. And it is a book about um, what he calls colorblind racism theory. Um, it, it's both the attitude and the power dynamic. It is an attitude that is restricting the power and the life chances of a group of color. That is That is what racism is. Um, so, so first of all, I think that right that having that different definition can change the you know the way that we think about racism and that right, racism being right. I, right, I also talk in the book about you know structural racism and that racism operates not just on the individual level where it's about how we treat each other, but also on a structural level where it's about the things that we have access to, the, the, the things we are denied access to. It's about our access to healthcare and to quality education and to equal employment opportunities and right environmental issues. And right, that is where racism lives in the way that it is, you know, predominantly impacting our lives and our communities. Um, then the second part of what you talked about is our assumptions about who a racist is. And I think you're absolutely right mm-hmm. here, right? That, that if you think about the stereotype of who is a racist, it is someone who is ignorant, someone who is uneducated, mm-hmm. someone in the South, so right, mm-hmm. someone who's backwards, um, and and when we have that as our idea of racism, right, we think that these are bad, evil, stupid people. Mm-hmm. That is the simplistic way for thinking about racism and who what it means to be racist. And so, if we start from the other side of things and say, okay, let's assume that racists are good people, that they're smart, right? They care about their families and they don't hate anybody. But they are racist. So how do they get to this racist idea? That, is, that we're going to have a more complex understanding of ra- of what uh, race is, right? That there are yeah. good people who, right, like you know, that they, they that they they don't hate anybody, but they are acting in racist ways. And I think that that, yeah. that that's a more complex understanding of racism. That there are people who all they want to do is protect their own interests. It's less about hating you, and more about keeping what they they want to keep what's theirs and they think that you want to take what you know away from them or they want to get they want to keep access to unearned privileges they don't want the you know they don't they don't want a, a equal playing field because they like having the advantages in society right and so you don't have to be yeah. bad to want the you know to want the most you can get out of life um, and yeah. right and now, now, you know, and, and maybe people can make arguments about that, but I think that, like lots of people are just out for their own best interest. Um, and yeah. right. But I think that when you're, you know, so, so again, like that is my view of understanding racism. And so from a sociological perspective that you can be racist, 
Um, and that comes from, you know, uh, operating out of a sense of self-interest. And so, you know, that yeah. I think that that's part of why lots of folks talk about that, that part of, you know, anti-racist work is by building interclass or, you know, building class coalitions and understanding that, yeah. that, you know, lots of racists who are, who are worried about black folks taking what they got, that the reality is it's not black folks who want to take what you got. It's the 1% that wants to take what you got and is keeping you yeah. from having more. And they're made, you're at that, but they have, you know, the, the elites, the ruling class have a vested interest in keeping poor white folks scared of poor black folks, scared of, yeah. of you know, Mexicans crossing the border, thinking, oh, they're going to yeah. take our jobs and change our country. And as long as they have you looking that way, then you're not looking at the tax situation or at the fact of like why you have to pay so much for insulin. When, you know, it could be, right, it could be free for everyone if we, right, if we allow, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of, uh, we, we come to a place of having universal health care like most other developed countries in the world, yeah. you know? Yeah, Brother, you, you are laying it out. Family, we're talking to Rob Eshman, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. And I, I want to make sure that I say that a couple of times so that no matter where you are in this interview, you know exactly what we're talking about and you can make your way to go purchase that book because you see the kind of thought and the kind of man that put that together. Rob, I want to dive into this question a bit. What in the world was going on when you thought to yourself, you know what? I'm going to dig into racism and social media and the internet. Like, where did this idea come from? I'm grateful that you did it because it's answering questions that I think sit in a lot of people's heads. But where did the idea come from to pull this together. You know, that's interesting. So I, I, I opened the book with the story about the first time I played online video games, which was also the first time that I was called the N-word maliciously. Um, and I think that just in my personal life, like being a gamer, being someone who spent time online and seeing racist comments on YouTube. I remember when Obama was president, I had this theory that I was testing. This is before I'm doing research on this in this area, right? Where on any YouTube video that you know, as I'm kind of scrolling through videos or as videos would autoplay, I would I would look through the comments, and all of them had a comment that said something about Obama being the monkey, right? Mm -hmm. It was just it didn't have anything. The video didn't have anything to do with Obama, but there's some racist who wanted to talk about Obama in every video. That's what it felt like to me. And I think that in my personal life, I had seen so much racism online that when I Started, right when I read about racism becoming more subtle, I said to myself, you know what? It doesn't seem like it's subtle everywhere. There are places where racism is not subtle. So how do we make sense of that contradiction? I think that's where these questions originated for me, is wanting to understand how does the internet change how we talk about race, how we experience racism. Um, and so that's where, right, that's, that's where the question originated. And then I actually started the study. Um, with, you know, in chapter four, I have a case study of a campus-based website that allowed students to post anonymously to engage in discussion about controversial issues, but it just turned into a, a super racist site. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, and um, I started the study by talking with students of color. So I went to, you know, the black club. I went to the, the Latinx club. I went to the Asian club. And I talked with, you know, recruited students and talked with them about their experiences with race, if you know, face-to-face -face settings and online and trying to understand the differences between those things. And so I think that, that I, I had this interest in the back of my head for a while. 
And then, well, you know, when, when I, um, you know, got wind of this situation, then I, that, that is where I started the study really to investigate that one situation. And of course, the study turned into something much bigger where, you know, I went into yeah. it to understand racism and, and came out of it with a different understanding of how folk groups of color were engaging in resistance. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the, you know, the most exciting part of the book to me is that we're not just talking about how racism is changing. We're talking about how resistance is changing in a way that I, I find to be very empowering and inspiring. Um, but that, you know, that, that's where it comes from for me is seeing a disconnect between my experiences and things that I'm reading and wanting to make sense of those things and explore them, yeah. you know, in a systematic way. Um, you know, yeah. just, just, to, just to, you know, I, it, was, it was a question that I felt hadn't been answered. Um, yeah. in the literature and I want, you know, I wanted to give it a shot. Yeah. You know, I think you brought up another very important topic and that is, it's not just racism. It's also resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we can very easily spend so much time talking about the racism, the, the things, the acts, the beliefs done to us that impact us versus the, the idea of resistance, which is, how do we push back? So I, I want to dive into that a little bit as well. First off, what does resistance mean to you, especially after going through the process of writing this book? And then secondly, to add to that question, what are the forms and the ways that you think the everyday person like myself and anyone else who's listening can practice resistance and mm. implement resistance? Like, how do we do that? That is a great question, and I. And this is another one where I'm going to be careful to not make everything fit into my <laughs> resistance, right? Fair. Where, I, yeah, for me, resistance is is any way you can challenge racism. So that can be, you know, speaking up to someone who you know who 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 says or does something racist. It can be, you know, writing a letter to your congressman, your congressperson. It can be clapping back online. It can be writing a poem, creating a piece of art that explores racism and resilience. Mm -hmm. It can be sitting at home and allowing yourself to heal after a stressful day in a racist world. And so I think resistance can be all of those things. When I write about digital resistance, I'm writing about actual real-time responses and challenges to racism. So my right chapter five of the book is called Digital Resistance, and that's what I'm talking about. Is is right that, that, that there was not much right? There's not much writing that has been done about people reacting in real time to racism, and that that is what um, I saw, and that is what I wanted to write about. And so I think that that is something that is new and innovative, and comes from people on the ground who are challenging racism when they have no institutional support to help them in that fight. And when they're in, you know, they're in schools or they feel like the school doesn't do anything when racists get caught being racist. So we had to do something ourselves. And I think that's the type of resistance, um, you know, that, 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 that I am, you know, am most inspired by. Although, again, I yeah. think I am, you know, I, I'm open to and encouraging of resistance in, in whatever way, shape or form that means for folks um, who are, you know, who are on the receiving end of, of racist acts. If you had to take the book, and I, I know this is going to be difficult to boil it down, but for everyone listening, they, they've heard all the places that we've gone today. And of course, they all intersect and they're all correlated, but still multiple themes that we've kind of dived into a bit. So for someone listening who's interested in the book, what do you think are the, the top three? Matter of fact, I'm going to ask that question a completely different way. We all, in my opinion, operate in this world 
in the capacity in which we take the gifts that we have been given inside of us and we find a way to implant them in places that people can pick them up, right? Whether we recognize that or realize that or not, I do feel like we are all walking around trying to figure out how we can give the gifts that we've been given away because that's what we were designed to do on some level. Yeah. As you wrote this book, what were the gifts that you were trying to give away and how do people find them? Mm. Mm, that's a good one. So I, I'm going to say two things. One is the gift of seeing through the masks that people that that, that, that racism wears, and I think that I when I talk about masked racism as being racism that is hidden, racism that is embedded in everyday interactions and in mainstream institutions and policies and laws, and I think that folks who who have personal experiences with racism can see through that racism. Mm-hmm. People who study it, people who fight against it, right? Activists, educators, scholars um, understand it and can see it, but but everyone can't. And I think that one of the gifts that I'd like to give people is the ability to recognize the mechanisms of racism that mm-hmm. that make our world move and that are continuously limiting the chances that Black folks and folks of color have to you know to to, to you know achieve. The American dream and right the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness. Yeah. Um, I think that everyone can't see it, and that's what something that I'd like to do is help people be able to see it and help people have the tools to be able to help the, the folks around them that they love be able to see it. You know, I think that there's lots of people who, right? The, you know, the, the reality is, unfortunately, most of the people who are going to pick up my book already probably have some understanding of racism. Right? If you don't, yeah. if you don't believe racism is real, you're probably not trying to read my book about racism. And so, what I hope that it does, it provides a tool for people to say, "Oh, this is going to help me when I talk to my kids, when I talk to my uncle." And I think that that is a powerful act. And so, I, I, I would say those are the two things, um, you know, I, I most like to lead people with. Brother, I love that. I love that. It, it, it takes me. Of course, this is a podcast. It's going to be questions, right? It takes me to this place. I'm going to build these two questions together. And until I, I'm, I think to these questions like live on the spot, because this one is just, it matters to me so much. And to the listeners, you know, thank you for, for rocking with me because you know, I normally sound more put together, but this is one of the ones that I feel such a personal connection to that I want to be extremely careful in how I ask these questions because I really do think that the question matters, but so does the answer very, very much. When I think about online behavior, when I think about social media and the way we respond, the way we attack, the way we converse, the way we engage with that safety, that faux safety built in because no one can get to me. They can't figure out who I am. I think it gives us a a power that for some is probably good, for others is bad. Forgive the length of this question. But it brings me to to this place. How does the behaviors that we enact, the behaviors that racists specifically enact online, over time, how does it affect how they behave out in public? And secondarily, as they find these safe spaces of like thinkers where they can create this new narrative inside of a silo and then it looks out because we know everything on the internet is is accurate and, and factual, how does that new behavior impact the idea of revisionist history? Mm, that's a great question. So I think that white supremacist groups have been using technology for a long time, 
that they were some of the early, you know, enactors of new technologies and they have consistently tried to use them for, you know, getting people to think like them. Um, and I, I, I cite a book by Jesse Daniels where she, she explored the ways that um, white, a white supremacist group bought martinluthercking.org. And for years, when he went to that site, it was actually a, right, a fake site that had false information about Dr. King. And who knows how many people were influenced by those false narratives. And so I think that, right, that, that the white supremacists use online spaces for recruiting. I think that lots of, right, like some of these racist shooters that you go, right, when they, when they start investigating, they find out that they were using racist forms to develop their ideas. So absolutely, I think that there is a connection between, um, you know, um, online behaviors and real world behaviors. Um, actually, I got a paper coming out soon. It's in press right now called Digital Rage, where we find mm-hmm. that um, in the days after Obama gave a speech while he was president, the number of N-words used on Twitter increased for three days following that speech. And so it's right there is a real connection between things that happen in the real world and things that happen online. And we know that when people find their communities online, they can become even more radicalized. And that could lead to um, them having more confidence in those worldviews when they, when they you know, are face-to-face settings. So absolutely, I think that that is something that can in part explain Donald Trump, um, can in part explain January 6th. I think that, 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 yes, racism online does have an effect on folks and, and finding those communities can make them feel more confident. And it's scary because it seems like we're in a moment of this pendulum swing towards increased racism being acceptable in mainstream political you know, settings. I think Republicans have been hiding their racism for a long time. And now you got all these Republican Congress folks who are acting crazy because they think that's the way to get the Donald Trump level support. And they're saying crazy things that, that no politician would dare have said because they think that it makes them seem less like a politician when you got, you got a lot of people who are tired of the, the typical politician talking around the issue. Um, um, you know, and so I absolutely, I think that it has a, has an impact on behavior. I will say that my hope and my expectation is that, right. I think that they're shooting themselves in the foot. I think that mm-hmm. that invisibility is actually racism's most powerful weapon. That it's it's the most scary when racism can operate mm-hmm. without anyone knowing that it's doing that. Because how do we fight back against it, right? Um, if, if we're not looking for it, if we don't believe that it's there, then that means that we're just going to allow it to continue to ruin lives without without fighting back against it. And I think by being more open, you know, although it hurts and although like that means that we're in a time right now where 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 it, it, it you know we're shaking our heads and, and we can't believe that this is where the world is, it also means that more and more people are seeing the connection between racist ideas and you know racist policies that were only racist in their effects and not not openly. And I think that that will mean more people organizing to fight against racism in the long term. Yeah, that's I I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, how do how do we take that understanding that the access to information, the amplification of voices that's happening on the internet, on digital media, on social media, is actually working against the concept of racism? How do we magnify that? How how do we get more people, not just vocal, but comfortable enough being vocal. I realize I'm rambling a little bit, so let me clear that up. 
One of the questions that I have gotten so many times on Wild Black is how did you or or how did your co-host or more than likely, how did your guest get so smart? How did they get so much information that they can share that with us? Where did they get this level of confidence from to speak about the things that they do? Where did they go and learn all these stories and histories that are true when all I got was what they taught me in eighth grade civics class? So how do people go out and get this information and build their confidence so that they can become more vocal, more amplified, and help to fight back in this digital space? Mm. That's a great question. You know, I, I, you know, one of the one of the students I interviewed, she told me that when she came into college, she was like Stacy Dash. So Stacy Dash is right like a a black and yeah. Latin conservative woman um, who you know engages in you know you, you see lots of evidence of internalized racism that right. Absolutely. Um, and but then she said that she's leaving college militant, fight the power. And the thing that changed her racial consciousness, it was not being a part of the black club. It was not taking classes in school. It was not activism. It began with her following social justice oriented blogs online where she was learning, oh, racism is right. And in her words, that racism is not just people using the N word. Racism is the prison industrial complex. And that those things opened her eyes and made her realize that despite her having a good life, right, coming from a well-off background and, and, you know, being at a great school, that despite those things, racism was alive and well and, and ruining people's lives. And that is what changed who she was as a person. Now, then, of course, you know, she did do the traditional things to, to build up your consciousness. But for her, the way that she explained it was she found these things online. So I think that. The reality is, man, I wish that all this learning took place, that I could send you to a handbook, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. to, to wake people up. Um, but I think that, that you know, that, that, and there have been a lot, there are lots of people, there are community organizations that are, you know, engaged in, in building people's political consciousness. And I think, right, I think that there are folks online who are, who are building political consciousness among their followers. Um, I think there are lots of places to learn that are not necessarily the school system. I think I did not learn the, you know, the true story behind the civil rights movement when I was in elementary school. I learned that in grad school. And so right, I make sure I teach it now to make sure that there are no more kids who, who go without the understanding, who there are no more kids who think that Rosa Parks sat down because she was tired instead of knowing that Rosa Parks sat down because the community organizers decided today is the day you're going to get arrested and tomorrow we have rides organized for people because we are going to have a boycott to fight against racism. Right? I think we, we don't yeah. we don't get the full story. So I think that we have to seek out counter narratives and it's going to come from activists, from community leaders, um, you know, from from folks who write on these things. Um, and, and, and and I think that, that it is you know it's very possible to to find those things online and to learn um, on your own terms, and uh, because unfortunately, I think educational institutions have failed us and not providing us with the information, Absolutely. so we have to look to other sources. Yeah, I've got I've got two more questions before before we close. Um, the first one is this: as we navigate through our online spaces, and 
even for the ones of us who believe we are sharp enough to identify the racism that's unfolding in front of us, the dangers that, that lurk, so to speak, on digital and online spaces, where, where's the hidden racism at? Where, where, are the, where are the places that it's dangerous for us and we don't necessarily recognize it? Are there any things that, that we should be watching out for that we're not necessarily paying attention to today? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, I think you know one one thing that comes to mind is like um, voting restriction. Hidden racism is when um, in Texas they shut down all the places for Black folks to vote except for the places two hours away. So you know everybody has to go wait in line, um, you know, uh, for a couple hours. And, it, you know, the, that hidden racism is making it illegal to hand out water to people who are standing in the hot Texas sun for four hours just to cast a vote. Right. That's hidden racism is is right. Hidden racism is, is turning into fascism where they don't want they don't want us to be in a democracy. They don't want black folks vote to count because they're scared of losing power. Um, so I think the hidden racism are the policies that are impacting people on a local level um, that that we don't always we are not always aware of. And it's hard to, to keep abreast of. I think that there are people who are, who are working hard to expose those things, but we have to have our eyes and ears open in order to see them, right? Um, and then I think hidden racism is, right, it, um, it, it is hidden in the everyday stories that we hear about what it means to be an American um, and, and, and why it is that some people succeed and other people don't. The racism is, is embedded in those myths about, um, you know, the world that we live in, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and so again, I think that it's important for us to seek out and share stories that challenge these dominant narratives about, you know, what it means to be successful, that to stop blaming ourselves and each other for, you know, um, not being as, as successful as we would like to be. And instead to highlight the ways that the system is, is, you know, rigged against us, and then and then yeah. think about ways that we can engage in action to try and change those systems. Yeah. All right. My my last question for my listeners it's pretty obvious today. I, I didn't I didn't prep any questions beforehand. I wanted this to be a completely authentic, inquisitive interview. As I learned more about you and and, and your book and and the ideals and ideas that, that you push. So in that, I missed something, right? I'm, I'm sure there is something that you have experienced or you have learned through your, your world, your experiences, the, the writing of the book, the research that you need to share. And I didn't ask that question. And so what I want to do now is make my last question just that. What is it that you have picked up that, that burns inside of you that you think this audience, black folks collectively, need to understand about this idea of racism hidden behind the, the digital screen? What do they need to know about when the hood comes off, racism and resistance in the digital age? What are the stories, the, the points of insight, the, the, the critical moments? What's critical path for us? What have we not talked about? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that we've talked about a lot. I would say that one thing to, uh, you know, I want to make sure that, that to mention is that I don't think that 
But I, while I do think it is is powerful and important for us to challenge racism in online spaces, right? And uh, you know, if, if you pick up when the hood comes off, I, I talk a lot more about activism online, and the, you know how how young people develop activist identities. Um, but I also talk about how that is not the end of the story, and that we have to connect yeah. things we do online to real world um, action. And so I would say that is something I want to leave folks with. Is, is is as we come to a greater understanding of how racism is changing, how these things are dynamic, that we also need to remember that we still have to hit the streets. We still have to engage in, in, in more traditional forms of organizing and activism in order to see real and lasting change. I love it, brother. Rob, this was absolutely amazing, bro. I, I loved the things that you said. I love the contribution that you are making to this community, specifically the, to the greater world. I love the the book in itself and the things that you're communicating there. And I would love it if you could share with the people in closing where they can engage with you, where they can follow you. If you have a preference as to where they buy the book from, all that information, and then we'll close this thing out. Of course, of course. You can buy When the Hood Comes Off, wherever books are sold. Um, you can get it from Amazon, order it from Barnes & Noble, order it from Goodreads, from Powell's. If you want to support your local bookstore and they don't have it in stock, you can ask them to order it and they can get it to you um, in a couple of days. Um, and then for me, you can find me on social media. I'm at Rob Eshman on Twitter, at Rob Eshman on Instagram um, and uh, um, threads. I love it. I love it. Anything else you want to close with, bro? No, sir. Appreciate you having me on here, man. This is a great conversation. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, Wild Black Family, these are the core interviews that we do here. You know how much these kind of conversations matter to me. Yep, we we, we talk about these things, but we also talk about the diversity in black folks. We, we talk about every aspect of the black world and the black life, but you know that there's a special place in my heart for episodes like this. So Rob, brother, I am so grateful that you came and spent the time with us. Wild Black Family listeners, go back, listen to this episode again, because I know there's a nugget that you've missed. Make sure you go and get this book so you can enrich yourself and then in turn enrich someone around you. You heard Rob talk about the fact that some of the people who actually need to read this book will never pick it up. So that means we have a responsibility to share the things that we learned from it, to give those good nuggets that we picked up to the other people around us who may need them to make their worlds better. Together, we have an opportunity to make something really, really happen here. We can fight this idea of racism. We can practice resistance. I love the fact that he brought that to the table today. Resistance can take so many forms. Find the one that fits you and get in the fight with that. Wild Black Peace, we are out. We love you. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles? And a breakfast cut off. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.